is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ruald Dahl was a single-minded adventurer and an eternal child who gave us the iconic Willy Wonka and Matilda Wormwood. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of one of the greatest authors and eccentric characters of the modern age whose work still delights millions around the world today. Ruald Dahl is one of the most celebrated children's authors of all time. He published 19 books over the course of his writing career, many of which have been adapted into musicals, films, TV shows, and more. His name is synonymous with strangeness and magic. Some of Ruald Dahl's most iconic works include James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the BFG, just to name a few. Here's Ruald Dahl explaining where his book ideas came from. They always, of course, start with some tiny germ somewhere, and you rattle it around and uh, hope for the best and build up the story. I I don't know. It's got to start with something. Ruald hated school. What he did like was stopping by the candy shop with his friends on the way home. Here's Robert Lindsay reading from Ruald Dahl's autobiography. When I was seven, my mother decided I should go to a proper boys' school. It was called Clandath Cathedral School, and it stood right under the shadow of the cathedral. The sweet shop at Clandath was the very center of our lives. To us, it was what a bar is to a drunk or a church to a bishop. Without it, there would have been little to live for. But it had one terrible drawback, this sweet shop. The woman who owned it was a horror. The owner's name was Mrs. Pratchett. She never welcomed us when we went in. And the only time she spoke were when she said things like, I'm watching you, so keep your thieving fingers off them chocolates. Mrs. Pratchett would dig the candy out of the jars for the boys with her dirty hands. The boys ate the candy anyway, of course. But one day, they decided to get back at her. My four friends and I had come across a loose floorboard at the back of the classroom. One day, we, uh, we lifted up and found a dead mouse. It was an exciting discovery. Hold on a tick, I said. Why don't we slip it into one of Mrs. Pratchett's jars of sweets? Then, when she puts her dirty hand in to, to grab a handful, she'll grab a stinky dead mouse instead. Here's Ruald Dahl. When you're old enough to, to, to uh, and experienced enough to, to be a competent writer, uh, by then you become uh, pompous and... and uh, uh, Adult, grown up, and, 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 and you've lost all your jokiness. You, you don't have any... any, any, any and, and so, unless you are a kind of undeveloped uh, adult, and you still have an enormous amount of childishness in you, and you giggle at funny stories and jokes and things, I don't think you can do it. The five of us left school and headed for the sweet shop. 
We were tremendously jazzed up. We felt like a gang of desperados setting out to rob a train. We were the victors now, and Mrs. Pratchett was the victim. She stood behind the counter, and her small, malignant pig eyes watched us suspiciously. When I saw Mrs. Pratchett turn her head away for a couple of seconds, I lifted the heavy glass lid of the gobstopper jar and dropped the mouse in. The following day, Mrs. Pratchett marched into the cathedral school, pointed out the five boys she suspected to the headmaster, and they were ordered to his dreaded study. We didn't speak as we made our way down the long corridor into the headmaster's dreaded study. He raised the cane high above his shoulder, and as he brought it down, it made a loud swishing sound. And there was a crack, like a pistol shot, as it struck Thwaites' bottom. Harder! Harder! shrieked her voice from over in the corner. We looked around, and there was the loathsome figure of Mrs. Pratchett. Lay in term! Here's Rouen. Vicious people are much more interesting than, than nice, good people. There's nothing more boring than a, than a totally good person. They've got to have quirks and bad habits and, and things like that. You, you can have a nice one as well, the chucked in there, but, but uh, if you had a book full of nothing but nice people, it'd be awfully boring. Mrs. Pratchett would become the inspiration for Miss Trunchbull and Matilda, the first of four books by Dahl ranked among the School Library Journal's top 100 all-time children's books. This is more than any other writer on the list. Matilda was made into a movie in 1996 and starred Danny DeVito. Here's Robert Lindsay reading from Matilda. It's like a war, Matilda said. You're darn right it's like a war, Hortensia cried. And the casualties are terrific. We are the Crusaders, the gallant army fighting for our lives with hardly any weapons at all. And the Trunchbull is the prince of darkness. The foul serpent, the fiery dragon with all the weapons at her command. I've never liked authority. I've never got on very well in institutions. It's wrong, of course, to be like that because uh, you couldn't run schools and institutions like that if, if, if everyone was like that. Uh, there shouldn't be too many rebels around. There shouldn't be. But you are one. Well, I, I, yes, but you, you get much mellower as you get older, you know. I'm still a rebel in some respects, yes. Very much so. I don't like are conformists, people who conform. And what a story so far. By the way, I love his description of Pratchett, her malignant pig eyes. We were all laughing in the studio because we've known a Mrs. Pratchett or two in our lives, all of us. But when we come back, more of the story of Ruald Dahl here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Rual Dahl. Let's pick up where we last left off. When Rual's mother heard about his caning, she was so upset with the school that she sent him to a different one. Rual was only nine, and he was terribly homesick. The head of the school was again awful, another caner. And at night, Rual slept facing toward home and quietly cried himself to sleep. He began writing to his mother every week, and it became a habit he would continue until the day she died, about 40 years later. Here's Rual reading from James and the Giant Peach, published in 1961. Until he was four years old, James Henry Trotter had a happy life. He lived peacefully with his mother and father in a beautiful house beside the sea. There were always plenty of other children for him to play with, and there was the sandy beach for him to run about on, and the ocean to paddle in. It was the perfect life for a small boy. Then one day, James's mother and father went to London to do some shopping, and there a terrible thing happened. Both of them suddenly got eaten up, in full daylight, mind you, and on a crowded street, by an enormous angry rhinoceros which had escaped from the London Zoo. Now this, as you can well imagine, was a rather nasty experience for two such gentle parents. But in the long run, it was far nastier for James than it was for them. Their troubles were all over in a jiffy. They were dead and gone in 35 seconds flat. Poor James, on the other hand, was still very much alive. And all at once, he found himself alone and frightened in a vast, unfriendly world. When Rual was 13, he was sent to another boarding school. There were more rules and more canings. The school, however, was near the town where the Cadbury Company was located. Cadbury would often ask the boys to rate their chocolate bars. Dahl took these duties very seriously. Here's Dahl. And we were given them free and we tasted them and, and there was a bit of paper and then we marked them all from 0 to 10. I realized then, you see, that, that this vast chocolate factory had in it a room, a secret room, where fully grown men and women spent their entire time trying to think up and invent new chocolate bars for children. Here's Rual's daughter, Lucy Dahl, and Robert Lindsay reading from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka was partially my father. I think he based most of his adult heroes on parts of himself, parts of his dreams of glory, parts of characteristics of himself that he liked in himself. Did you know that he's invented chocolate ice cream so that it stays cold for hours and hours without being in the refrigerator? That's impossible, said little Charlie, staring at his grandfather. Of course it's impossible, said Grandpa Joe. It's completely absurd. But Mr. Willy Wonka has done it. Here's Roald Dahl's authorized biographer, Donald Sturrock. Roald wrote the screenplay for the movie of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and had very high hopes for it, but he was very disappointed when they came to shoot it. We thought Wonka was more mercurial and more weird, and he had Spike Milligan, 
in mind, and they didn't like him. So it ended up with Gene Wilder. He thought Gene Wilder just wasn't eccentric enough, was too soft. By July 1933, Ruald Dahl was more than ready to leave school. Unlike most of his classmates, though, he did not go to college. Here's Ruald. I was lucky because I, from the time I left, moment I left school at the age of 18, uh, I didn't want to go to university. I, all I wanted to do was to get a job which would allow me to travel the world. If you think of the time, which was 1933, uh, there were virtually no aeroplanes flying you anywhere. There weren't any. No commercial airline. It's impossible for young people today to understand the excitement of getting on a boat and, and traveling solidly for three or four weeks and finishing up in Africa among the coconut palms. At age 21, while working for the Shell Petroleum Company, Ruwal had most of his teeth pulled out and replaced them with false teeth. He believed that real teeth were more trouble than they were worth with the aches and the dental work. And he talked his mother into doing it too. Ruwal got to see many of the wonders of Africa, the crocodiles became the inspiration for the enormous crocodile. Here's Ruwal's illustrator, Quinton Blake, who Ruwal described as the finest illustrator of children's books in the world today. The first book I did was, was The Enormous Crocodile. It says he had hundreds of teeth, I think. Um, so I, and I sort of came to do it with like hundreds of... And, especially for eating children. Soon, he thought, one of them is going to sit on my head and I'll give a jerk and a snap. And after that, it will be yum, yum, yum. <laughs> At that moment, there was a flash of brown. It was Mugglewump, the monkey. Run! Mugglewump shouted to the children. All of you, run, run, run! That's not a seesaw. It's the enormous crocodile. And he wants to eat you up. Here's Ruwal and his daughter, Ophelia. I'm quite prepared to have them killed in the most grisly possible way, like having them uh, little boys uh, from Eton pulled out of the windows and, and, and eaten by giants, and bones crunched up and everything. That's fine, as long as there is a whopping great laugh at the same time. Then, then they love it, you see. So do I. That's why I do it. He liked to shock. That was important because he felt life was shocking. And I think he, he, he also thought it was too easy to look at all the lovely things in life. Although he could do that too, but he just didn't think that people wanted to read about that. World War II was breaking out. Ruwal decided to join the British Royal Air Force, or... RAF in Africa. Here again is Robert Lindsay reading from Dahl's autobiography and Donald Sturrock. I went flying with the RAF in the Second World War. I flew straight to the point where 80 Squadron should have been. It wasn't there. Below me there was nothing but empty desert and, and rugged desert at that. It was nearly dark now, I, I had to get down somehow. I chose a piece of ground that seemed to be as boulder-free as any. My wheels touched down, I, I, I throttled back and prayed for a bit of luck. 
didn't get it. I was unconscious for some moments, but I must have recovered my senses very quickly because I can remember a mighty whoosh as the petrol tank exploded. The crash clearly was incredibly important because it became the subject of his first piece of published work. But I think it also may well have changed his personality. He thought and often said that um, he felt something had changed in him as a result of this crash. They were the head injuries that made him into a writer. After spending five months in an Egyptian hospital, Rual was patched up and then ordered to Greece to fight the German Nazis. Rual flew 12 missions in four days. Every day, he expected to die. And what a story this is. And my goodness, we're learning so much about, well, how this writer became a writer. And it was through experience. He wasn't sitting around in a writer's room with writers at college writing about himself. He was writing about real-life stories. Of course, he was putting himself in as a hero, but it wasn't his biography. It wasn't his memoir. It was imaginative work, and a lot of that imagination sprung from real-life travel. And again, it is hard to imagine that there were no planes at a time, and getting overseas, well, it took a commitment. You didn't just pop on a plane. You were going to Africa. You wanted to go. You aren't just a casual tourist. And then, of course, that World War II experience. And all of this would, of course, impact what he wrote about and how he wrote. Fascinating that he said the head injuries turned him into a writer. And so often that's the case. And we cover that so often here in our American stories. The tragedy or a bad circumstance can actually create opportunities and victories. When we come back, the remarkable story of Rual Dahl. And by the way, one of our favorites, even thus far, just watching the reaction here of our storytelling team, Rural Dahl's life here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Rual Dahl. Let's pick up where we last left off. In all his war service, Rual shot down at least five enemy airplanes. And that made him a flying ace. The guilt that he was a survivor lay with him. And in his ideas book, you can still see the names of the pilots who flew there, which he's obviously written down much later and put an X against the ones who've died. Timber Woods, Oofy Still. I mean, there were probably only two or three of the 30-odd pilots in that, in, in that squadron around that time who survived. In 1941, the United States entered the war. Rual took a job in Washington, D.C. at the British Embassy. Here's Rual. 
I was sitting in my rather grand office in the British Embassy, wondering what to do, and uh, there was a knock on the door, and uh, I said, come in. And a tiny little man came in with thick glasses and uh, said, excuse me, are you busy? And I said, not in the least. No, do come in. And he, uh, he said, my name's Forrester, C.S. Forrester. I said, get on, you know, you can't do that. He's my, one of my heroes, the great writers of that time, Captain Hornblower. He said, now you've been in the war, America's only just coming in. I'll take you out to dinner, or lunch it was. Uh, tell me uh, your most exciting exploit and I'll write it up in the Saturday Evening Post and we'll get the British a bit of publicity. So we went out to lunch and uh, I remember we had roast duck and he was trying to take notes and eat this bloody duck at the same time, you know, and, and he couldn't do it. And, and I said, well, why don't I scribble it down for you this evening in sort of rough way and then you can put it right when I send it to you. And, and, uh, and uh, he said, oh, that would be super. Would you do that? And I said, of course I will. So we finished our duck, and uh, I went home that evening, and I wrote this thing out and sent it to him. And I got a letter back uh, about a week later saying I, I asked for notes, not a finished story. Uh, I didn't touch it. The Saturday Evening Post had bought it once for $1,000. The agent takes 10%. Here's my check for 900 An Amazing bucks, stuff. You see? Super. I thought, my God, it can't be as easy as all that. <laughs> <laughs> Ruald wrote 16 more stories for the magazine, Walt Disney heard about this war hero who wrote stories and invited Ruald to Hollywood. Almost the first story that he wrote after shutdown of, over Libya was called Gremlin Law. And it, this was a story about these little creatures, the gremlins. They were what the pilots and the engineers blamed for unexplained mechanical failures. Although the Disney film failed, Ruald's very first children's book inspired the Bugs Bunny cartoon, Falling Hair. Get a load of this, folks. It says here, a constant menace to pilots are the gremlins who wreck planes with their diabolical sabotage. Here's Ruald. My first little book I wrote was called The Gremlins, which was bought by Walt Disney. And Eleanor Roosevelt read it to her grandchildren and, and loved this book. And so I got invited to the White House. And uh, we got to know each other a bit, you know, and, and I would go for weekends. Uh, FDR uh, had a, his country place was called Hyde Park, a fast place, and I used to go there. Got to know him. Uh, this, I was only a young chap of 26 in an RAF uniform, and I had no business around there, really. Didn't, didn't, didn't I read that you were a spy? <laughs> no, that's, a, that's an ugly word, a spy. <laughs> no, I, I did. I, I, I worked for um, British SIS, yes. My job was to try to help Winston Churchill to get on with FDR and, and tell Winston what was in the old boy's mind in America. You know, I, I, was, I was really not spying against the Americans. I was trying to create amity. Ruas sparred in the boxing ring with Ernest Hemingway. He played poker with Harry Truman. And he became friends with James Bond novelist Ian Fleming. Here's Donald Sturck. Well, met Ian Fleming when the two of them were working 
in intelligence in New York. He thought he was good fun, he was naughty, he was dangerous, he had a bit of edge to him. Rolt had no idea that he would be the later go on to write all the James Bond books. Then in London, they saw each other from time to time, and it was no surprise when it came to writing a screenplay of You Only Live Twice that the producers turned to Roald rather than someone else to write it. Roald met Patricia Neal, a young American actress in New York City. A Broadway actress, Neal made her film debut with Ronald Reagan in John Loves Mary, followed by another role with Reagan in The Hasty Heart, and then The Fountainhead, all in 1949. Here's Patricia Neal. I went to a party at Lillian Hellman's house and I met Roald Dahl there. Now, he really hadn't been heard of. He had written a couple of stories for The New Yorker. Then I sat beside him at supper. He paid no attention to me whatsoever. He just talked to Leonard Bernstein across the table. And so I was a little, well, I want to say off, which I... (laughs) at the end of that. And then he called me about two days later and asked me out, and I said, so sorry, can't go. And uh, then he called me again. Well, I had nothing better to do, so I said yes. When I went out with him, then we got to know each other better, and in the end, I decided I'd better marry him because I did want children. And uh, he was the father of my children. Rual was 37 and Patricia was 27. They had a small wedding in 1952 in New York City and moved into an apartment near Central Park. Here's Ruwald's daughter, Ophelia. This is 26 East 81st Street, where my parents lived in the late 1950s with my sister and brother. They lived opposite Campbell's funeral parlor, which my father liked a lot because he could watch the bodies being taken in and out. And he said that he saw some of them twitching when they were being taken in. But none of the windows of their apartment actually faced the funeral parlor. So that's a lie. In 1955, they had a daughter named Olivia. In 1957, they had another daughter, Tessa, and a son, Theo, in 1960. Here's Ruwal. I used to try to make them up a story every night, which lots of fathers and mothers do. And I found it rather difficult to make a good one every night. But now and again, I would make one, and the next night they would say, uh, do go on with the one you were telling us last night about the peach that grew and grew or something. And when this went on for several nights with one story, which was about the peach that never stopped growing, uh, I thought, well, why shouldn't I try and write that, you see? So I sat down and started writing uh, James and John Peach. Every night before we went to sleep, my father used to tell my sister Lucy and I a story. He told us about Fantastic Mr. Fox this way, and actually sometime later he told us about the Big Friendly Giant, which was the BFG. And this story just continues to dazzle. What a life lived. And my goodness, what a way to market test a story. If the kids keep while expressing interest in this story, maybe he's got one. No focus groups, just his own children making up a story every night. And by the way, we've told quite a number of stories about children's writers. A.A. A. Milnes, Shel Silverstein's, and that's The Giving Tree, 
Margaret and H.A. Ray, the wife and husband creators of Curious George, and of course, Maurice Sendak, and Where the Wild Things Are. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to them. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And when we come back, more on the life story of Rual Dahl. And it's a story like no other we've told here on this show. More after these messages. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with Our American Stories in the final segment, the final part of this remarkable story about Rual Dahl. Let's return to Greg Hanger. Just three months after Theo was born, his stroller was struck by a New York City taxi cab and hit the side of a bus. Here's Rual. When he was a baby, his, his, his nurse pushed his pram into a taxi in New York and, and uh, got severe head injuries and developed into hydrocephalus. It's, it's, it's too much cerebral spinal fluid in the ventricles and, and uh, you get pressure in there. Your brain suffers damage unless you're very swift and quick to relieve the pressure. And, and, and they did have a, a shunt or a, a tube with a valve in it where you could take the, drain the fluid out of the ventricle and down. And, but they weren't very competent, the, 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 the shunts they had in those days that he had to keep going back and having new operations. He had five, because the shunts kept locking, and I said, well, I mean, bugger this, we must be able to make a better shunt than this, and so. I thought of a, a lovely man who I knew was an inventor, who I'd been flying model airplanes with, Stanley Wade, his name was, in Wickham. And what I'd admired so much about him was that instead of buying these tiny model airplane engines, he made them all himself and turned them in his, in his uh, workshop. I said, uh, how about you doing this? He's an eccentric fellow with nothing much to do, and he said, yes, all right. Here again is Donald Sturrock and legendary British publisher and close friend of Rual, Tom Mashler. Saves the lives of thousands of kids all over the world. He made sure it was never sold for profit. That was just the kind of way he looked at a difficult situation. Well, what practically can one do to think one's way out of it? The process of invention, it, it rolled was to get high on it. It, it. it excited him to do it. And the imagination wasn't just to tell a story, it was to give it a magic and to give it a, a quality that only he could think of. I mean, most of the ideas in Dahl's books are, you don't find them in other writers. Sadly, Theo's accident was just the beginning. Two years after that, his eldest daughter died from meningitis following measles. Eventually, he picked himself up, and uh, only to, to have three years later another disaster, which was that Pat suddenly struck down by the most terrible stroke in, you know, while, while making a movie in, in, in L.A. When she woke up from consciousness, she could neither speak nor, of course, read or write or walk. 
having a good deal of paralysis down the right side. Patricia was in the hospital for a month, and Rual was not happy with the progress. So he took charge and brought her home. Here's Lucy and Rual Dahl. My mother was three months pregnant with me when she had three massive strokes. She had just won uh, the Oscar for Best Actress for HUD with Paul Newman. So she was at the top of her career. She could not walk, she couldn't talk, she couldn't read, she couldn't write. He was determined that he was going to get his wife back. And really, we learned, Mum and I learned how to walk and talk together. <laughs> when she started to pick up words, she made up, made them up. I made a whole list of them once, and I've, I've, I don't know where they are. She, she used to once say, you drive me crazy. She used to say, you drake my diodles, which is a splendid phrase, you know. I had all my words mixed up. I said words that didn't exist. I think Dad thought, wow, you know, there is, there's a whole other vocabulary here that hasn't been explored that I could have a little bit of fun with, which he did in The Big Friendly Giant. I is not a very know-all giant myself. But it seems to me that you is an absolutely know-nothing human being. Your brain's full of rotten wool. You mean cotton wool, Sophie said. What I mean and what I say is two different things, the BFG announced rather grandly. Rual hired a speech therapist to work with Patricia six rigorous hours a day, every day. He said his wife would be back to acting in a year. The doctors thought he was crazy. Rual forced Patricia to get well. He made her exercise every day. He refused to let her feel sorry for herself. Some people thought he was cruel. Once doctors saw that Rual's tough programming worked, they began using the same methods to treat other stroke victims. As my stroke happened, Rual began to make fabulous money. I is Odd how God makes it happen, isn't it? Writing never came easy for Ruwal. It took him months to write a story, sometimes a whole month, just to finish the first page. Ruwal said, It's tougher to keep a child interested because the child doesn't have the concentration of an adult. The child knows the television is in the next room. Here's Ruwal. There's absolutely no question for me that, that uh, uh, writing, we're talking about fine children's books as opposed to fine novels for adults. Uh, the children's book is far, far harder. It's not only harder, it's more important. And, and I think I can almost prove it because there is no writer of consequence in the world or who's ever lived who hasn't had a go at a children's book from Tolstoy to Graham, Graham Greene's done four. Uh, Nabokov, Saul Bellow, anyone you want to mention, uh, has had a go at it. They didn't succeed. Ruald also wrote stories for grown-ups, and they were always short ones. Six of these short stories appeared as episodes on the popular TV show Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He'd spot a sort of psychological situation and then insert a pretty convoluted plot, say, like a, a, a woman murders her husband with a, you know, with a frozen leg of lamb and then, you know, and then serves, then cooks the leg of lamb and serves it to the police officers for lunch who are looking for the murder weapon. I tell you what, why don't you help yourself to some of this, too? Boy, this is great. This piece of meat I've had in months. Mm. You said to finish it, didn't she, Jack? 
Matilda was one of Rewald's last books. He had a hard time working on it. He was diagnosed with a rare blood disease. At one point, he started all over and rewrote every word. Matilda was an instant bestseller when it came out in 1988. Here again is doll illustrator Quentin Blake. In the children's books, he was able to express feelings that he wouldn't have expressed coldly. Rual was able to tap into those feelings when he played with his children. As they so often did, one such moment landed on the pages of Danny, the champion of the world. Here's that moment, followed by Rual's daughter, Lucy. On a lovely still evening when there was no breath of wind anywhere, my father said to me, Let's make a fire balloon. A tall yellow flame leaped up from the ball of cotton wool and went right inside the balloon. Can you feel her floating? Yes, I said. Yes. Shall we let go? Not yet. Wait a bit longer. Wait until she's tugging to fly away. She's tugging now, I said. Right, he cried. Let her go! We did it from our garden and there are fields all around. And we would just watch in awe every single time. We would say, look at it, look at it, look at it go. Do you think it's going to go left? Do you think it's going to go right? Do you think it's going to go backwards? Which way do you think it's going to go? And then the, the light would go further and further and further away until it would fade away. Both uh, a man, my father and the mother, uh, should be sparky with their children and invent things and go places with them, you know, and uh, make bows and arrows or balloons or I don't know what, but you have to do things with your children. On November 23rd, 1990, 74-year-old Rual Dahl was gone. His family buried him near his house with some yellow pencils, wine, and of course, chocolate. Here again is Felicity Dahl. He always said to me, every child had spark in them, but the spark had to be lit. And I think he spent his life lighting sparks for children. Ruwald's life motto was a four-line poem written by Edna St. Moulet. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night, but ah, my foes, and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story, Greg, and what a remarkable life. And in that last episode, that last chapter, my goodness, what what difficulties his family encountered. First, the son gets struck by a taxi in New York City all kinds of surgeries. Then, my goodness, his daughter, she dies of meningitis. And then Patricia, his beautiful bride, by the way, see the movie HUD with Paul Newman. It's a classic. And there's, well, there's just not many actresses like her today, Patricia Neal. And my goodness, she suffered multiple strokes and had to essentially rebuild her entire vocabulary and her whole memory. And yet, out of that anguish came remarkable art and it's so true what he said every child has a spark in them and it does have to be lit 
and that's done always through the imagination. And you have to do things with your children. What a crazy idea. And parents who don't, well, you're missing out on all the fun in life and the greatest thing you can do with your life, which is be mesmerized by their imaginations and, in a sense, become young again through them. This is Lee Habib, the story of Rual Dal, here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding whale just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this. So the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left, and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, Crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheeded. 
This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes, far away. And I says, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, the hard hats in the air, and we're clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. What you're hearing are the chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen, and it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes in this mist. We were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. It's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down and kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale, George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet, ultimately, American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness. I just keep thinking about the smell. 
And as always, you can send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you've heard of a quirky one like this or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories. It might seem like an April Fool's joke. The Navy commissioned its newest destroyer on April 1st, a few years ago, and they named it after a man who deliberately crash-landed a perfectly good aircraft behind enemy lines. But the man who became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor and the man who lent his name to the USS Thomas Hudner had a darn good reason perhaps the best of reasons. Here's Greg Hengler. It was December 4, 1950, and 26-year-old Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner was flying an armed reconnaissance mission over the Chosen Reservoir in North Korea. The battle raging pitted nearly 100,000 Chinese troops against 15,000 United States Marines and soldiers. Cut off and surrounded, the Americans on the ground depended on the support of combat pilots like Hudner and his wingman, 24-year-old naval officer, Jesse Leroy Brown. Brown, a seasoned pilot and the Navy's first black aviator, was the son of a sharecropper and grew up in a Hattiesburg, Mississippi shack with no electricity. Hudner, who is white, was born in an affluent New England family. Yet the two men forged a deep bond at a time when the military and the nation was deeply divided on racial lines. Theirs was an incredible friendship that would be brutally tested that day. Here's Lieutenant Thomas Hudner with the story. Near the end of November 1950, we had soldiers and Marines on the ground who were driving up in the vicinity of the Chosen Reservoir, headed on up towards the Yellow River which is the dividing line between Manchuria and North Korea. Chinese were pouring across the Yellow River in great numbers and were attacking our troops and surrounding them, and they needed help desperately. We were flying above the mountains. The map showed the terrain in this area would be as high as 6,000 feet. The flight was going on with um, uh, nothing unusual. When Jesse called out that he's losing power, couldn't maintain altitude, and he thought he was going to have to crash land his airplane. When the plane hit the ground, it was bent at the cockpit at about a 30-degree angle, and the engine was torn off the airplane. Then we saw that the canopy of the aircraft had opened. Jesse had opened the canopy of the airplane, 
and waved to us to let us know that he had survived. But he didn't get out of the airplane. And then we saw that smoke was coming out from under the cowling of the airplane, indicating there was some sort of fire. Dick Savoli came back on our frequency and said that a helicopter was on the way up, but it might be half an hour before it could get up there. And when I realized that Jesse's airplane may burst into flame before it could get there, I made a decision to uh, make a, a wheels-up landing, crash close enough to his airplane, and pull him out of the cockpit and wait for the helicopter to come. The snow was about a foot and a half deep, and I, when I got over to Jesse's airplane, I could see that he was, uh, the reason he hadn't gotten out of the aircraft was because as the fuselage had buckled, it had pinned his knee in the plane. And on the Corsair, there isn't a horizontal surface in the whole airplane. The wings come down from the fuselage and then go up about six feet out from the fuselage. So getting up to look into the cockpit was difficult. I had to hold on with one hand just to hold on to the cockpit. I scooped up a handful of snow and threw it up under the cowling trying to... I knew I wouldn't put the the fire out if there was a fire, but at least to um, dampen anything that was in there. And after about half an hour of this, a helicopter arrived on the scene. The pilot came over to help. His name was Charlie Ward, a Marine First Lieutenant. <clears throat> but Charlie and I worked, <clears throat> worked for about 15 or 20 minutes, seeing that there was absolutely nothing we could do. The fire extinguisher, after a few squirts under the cowling, did no good whatsoever, and the axe just bounced off the fuselage. It did no good at all. So then Charlie called me aside, and he said that those helicopters were not equipped for flying at night, and he couldn't stay. He had to go. And he gave me the choice of uh, staying with Jesse or going with him. It would have been suicide to have stayed. Jesse had been wavering in and out of consciousness. I wasn't sure when he was conscious and when he wasn't. The temperature was at least around zero and went as low as 35 degrees below zero at night. And uh, I've, I made the decision to go with Charlie. I told Jesse we were going back to uh, get equipment. We couldn't, couldn't get him out of the airplane as it was. I don't know if he, if, if he heard me, I don't know if he was alive at the time. When I got back out to the ship, the captain called me the bridge right away, and he had the helicopter ready, the ship's flight surgeon, and he had a number of aircraft. He was going to take that carrier in as close to offshore as he possibly could, send the flight surgeon and the helicopter to the site of the wreckage, cut Jesse's body out of the airplane and bring him back to the ship. And I told him it was a very humane but only a symbolic gesture because it was much, much too dangerous to do so. So there's a flight of uh, Corsairs within with Napalm with the other aircraft flying escort and support for them. And they found our two airplanes and dropped Napalm. And they destroyed his airplane and my airplane. So Jesse died a warrior's death in a funeral pyre. I think that in retrospect, it was almost a natural thing for guys, um, guys in combat to do for 
shipmates and comrades. Had I been on the ground, I think I would have had enough faith in my shipmates for somebody to do something. And I felt that yes, there was a chance that I wouldn't, but to save Jesse's life was worth it. And I do feel very strongly about our doing this for freedom, but you know, the bottom line is that freedom doesn't mean nearly as much as spending a lot of time with these guys, especially in the times of stress and everything. Guys will do anything for one another. Looking back ever since I got the medal and, and seeing some of those people who are no longer with us, what they did, maybe there are 10 times as many people who should have gotten the medal. Maybe it's only twice as much, I don't know. But by God, we're not the only people that earned it. All these guys have stories. The music may be different, but it's all the same story. On April 13th, 1951, Hudner became the first American serviceman in the Korean War to receive the Medal of Honor. And Hudner, along with his shipmates, took up a collection for Jesse's daughter, who was two at the time. The crew raised the equivalent of $24,000 today for her college fund. Seven months following his commissioning ceremony on November 13, 2017, Thomas Hudner died at 93 years of age. More than half a century after President Harry S. Truman integrated the military in 1948, Hudner and Brown's legacy is evident. Hudner and Brown biographer Adam Makos writes, These two men, Jesse was a pioneer and Tom was a hero, but together they helped pave the way for the military we have today. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And thanks to Greg Hengler for telling that story. And what a story indeed. And what a great racial story. A white man laying down his life for his fellow airmen and doing it without reservation. And we're talking about Medal of Honor recipient, Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner, and Naval Officer Jesse Leroy Brown, his pal. In the end, his friend. And Jesse was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And we don't broadcast far. We're up here in Oxford, Mississippi, not too far south of Memphis. And he grew up at a time, well, where black people in the south were treated poorly, and in the, in the north, too. Racism was a deep fact of life, but not for these two men. And the military, time and again, leads so often in the culture, bringing people together in common cause. And that's the Forgotten War. Many people call the Korean War the Forgotten War. There's so little is spoken about that war. It's World War II, it's Vietnam, it's Iraq. But we tell the stories of all the wars and all of our fallen men and the survivors too because they're important stories here on Our American Stories and we're looking for you to share your hero stories, soldiers' stories on this show, past and present. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Always, we have time for these stories. Navy Lieutenant Thomas Hudner's story, in a way, his pal Jesse Leroy Brown's story, too, and a great American story about race and love, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And here on this show, you know we love music. And we've talked about this great American singer on the show before as part of our series, This Day in Music History. Called the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female jazz singer and song vocalist in the United States for more than a half century. She interpreted much of the great American songbook, and she worked with all the jazz greats, from Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Nat King Cole, to Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, and Benny Goodman. Lady Ella, as she was also dubbed, was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy, and after taking home her first two Grammys in 1958, she would go on to win 11 more. Most don't know the tragedy of her upbringing, though, that growing up trying to make it on the streets of New York, the young Ella helped her family out with financial struggles by working as a messenger running numbers and acting as a lookout for a brothel. But her first career aspiration, she wanted to be a dancer. But like many epic American stories, her talent, it could not be hidden. After her mother's death in the early 1930s, Ella had tried to make it on her own and was living on the streets. Still harboring dreams of becoming an entertainer, she entered an amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Ella blew the audience away when she sang the Hoagy Carmichael tune, Judy, as well as the object of my affection. And she went on to win the contest's $25 first place prize. This was the performance that launched her career. Today, we offer you an ode to the First Lady of Song, a compilation of some of her performances and through the lens of a poem written about Ella. Here's Sarah Moore performing that piece. I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still A poem for Ella Fitzgerald By Sonia Sanchez When she came on this stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella, Ella, queen had come and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen, amen, a woman, a woman. She began this three-aged woman, nightingales in her throat, and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splash their welcome, and our stained glass silences, our braided spaces unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with perdido, perdido, perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing? Up this morning, chimney smoking with life, carrying her basket of words. A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mommy, and all the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Hallelujah. 
voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watch her navigating an Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us. Shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman, her voice a nun's whisper. Her voice pouring out, guitar-thickened blues, her voice a faraway horn questioning the wind, and she became Ella. First Lady of Tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer, she became holy. A thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, chasing the morning waves, this Ellatonian voice soft like four layers of lace, when I die, Ella, tell the whole joint, please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance, audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. I remember it was April and the flowers ran yellow. The sun downpoured yellow butterflies and the day was yellow and silent. All of spring held us and a single drop of blood. she appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun, sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies and her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Lady, 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 be good. Be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey, lady, sweet Ella, lady, 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 be good. Ella, 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 lady, be good, good, good. And what a beautiful reading by Sarah Moore, Sonia Sanchez's beautiful 1934 poem celebrating Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella was certainly in a class of her own. She redefined jazz and soul for the nation, and she did so while breaking down racial barriers and going against the odds in every conceivable way. No great story is devoid of tragedy, by the way, and Ella sure had her own. She battled drugs, divorce and racism throughout her career and her rise to stardom. And she also suffered from diabetes, which ultimately took her life in 1996. But what she remembered for? That voice. There's nothing like it. 
that scatting, the performances. She left audience after audience with an experience unlike anything they'd ever known before. There were those musicians that joined trends, and there were those that set trends. But Ella, still belonging to a deep and collaborative musical heritage, transformed music forever. And while it is her rendition of Mac the Knife in 1960 that broke her into the pop charts, she was still going strong well into the 70s, playing concerts across the globe, doing shows with Frank Sinatra, recording with Duke Ellington, and singing with a Benny Goodman orchestra. She recorded more than 200 albums and sang some 2,000 songs in her lifetime and sold 40 million albums. And while Mel Torme described her as the high priestess of song, in Bing Crosby's own words, quote, man, woman, or child, Ella is the greatest of them all, end quote. Ella Fitzgerald's story, her music, in a poem, Sonia Sanchez's poem. Again, a beautiful job here by Sarah Moore. And let's go out with one of my favorites. It's Ella singing the Gershwin classic, Summertime. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org, that's F-E-E dot org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943, more than likely you would have been forced, indoctrinated, and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see you were never lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. 
They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an Alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. 
through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Lairs. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24th, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive 
an important high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border where he could safely be interrogated for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lehrs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Lairs to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II, but like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org. Great job, as always, on this, Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 